It's good to worship with you today. I've enjoyed the um, really beautiful simplicity of focusing on Christ uh, together. It's been good. But we want to do that now as well as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is where we'll be this morning. And as strange as it may seem, as you're turning there, I'm going to read you another text. So turn to Philippians 2, but listen to the Old Testament equivalent of the text we're about to look at. Philippians 2 is where we will be. I want to introduce this by reading to you Psalm 133. A song of ascent of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing of life forevermore. You may not know the exact details of that particular passage, but like any ancient poetry, you can look at it and put together, these guys really like unity. You don't even have to know the particularities of oil running down Aaron's beard or what the, you just know that, man, those Hebrew people, they really valued this. It was something really, really good. And it's a rather timeless sentiment, is it not? When people get along, things are great. And when relationships begin to deteriorate, it's anything but. This is true in life generally. It's true in church especially. I think all of us know at times what it's like individuals among a, a group of people largely or maybe something even within the entire church. You could take the opposite of Psalm 133 and, and just show the reality of how horrible it is when brothers do not dwell together in unity. In fact, one of the worst seasons of life that I had ever experienced was almost 20 years ago when my father called me on a, a Sunday night. I had stayed for our Sunday evening service, and then I drove back to the Bible college I was attending. It was about an hour away, and he called me on the phone on the way crying and said things went horrible. Well, I left early because there was supposed to be a, a meeting, a members meeting. And at that time, I was no longer a member of the church. I was serving at another church. But I was on my way back to the school, and they were going to have a meeting. And that meeting ended in yelling and arguing, a call to the police, and an official church split by the end of the night. I had three generations of people. In the same church, my grandfather literally laid the block for the building. I mean, like it was our family church, and it split right down the middle, half my family on one side, half on the other. And so I can tell you, friends, disunity is a devastating thing. That's why I love this church so much. I feel the opposite of that. Whether there's a ton of people here, whether there's less people here, I just enjoy oneness. I enjoy knowing that we're on the same 
page, that, that the, the message is going forward and that we're advancing truth together. And every once in a while, I feel it interpersonally. I think something's off with someone or I, maybe I'm off with someone else. And it's just devastating. It, it, it's burdensome. And so the question becomes, how then do we defend against this devastating disunity? How do we defend against it? You know, there's a theory out there, and it's actually kind of popular. We need to be careful about it, that the reason why churches split, I'm not kidding, is because of size. If we don't believe that explicitly, some people believe that implicitly. They get scared because they're like, well, more and more people are attending the church, and that means more and more relationships, which means more and more calls for trouble. Uh, part of this, I think, actually goes back to a non-Christian book. Malcolm Gladwell, famous for the book Outliers, wrote another book, not quite as famous, called The Tipping Point, in which he actually tries to describe how uh, word-of-mouth epidemics get started. He wanted people to know how ideas catch fire, and he, he had this one chapter in there that basically uh, was called The Rule of 150. The Rule of 150. It's argued Matt Gladwell would say, and he, the research isn't his own, it actually goes to this psychologist named Richard Dunbar, that 150 is the magic number for unity. It's the max, because our relational capacity can't exceed 150. Technically, I think the number is 147, but we round up, 150. <laughs> and the idea is that once any organization gets above 150 people, disunity is inevitable. You may still be in the same building, but you're going to have two different groups of people, but you can't actually have more than 150 people together. Now, it's all theory, but we kind of get the idea. Because we start thinking like, oh man, there's more people where I can't know everybody. And this is, I think, what inevitably happens, especially in a church like this. It starts off with depth of relationship while there's few. And then more and more people come and you get relationally stretched. And at some point, you reach your own 150. And you're, you're thinking, like some relationships that you were investing in begin to fall off. And then there's other ones that you want to enter into and you're like, no, I don't really have time. New people get added to the church, and you're like, well, I've already got my own group. I don't have time to invest in anybody else. And we reach this, like, inevitable, like, rip where we just wonder, like, okay, so what's going to happen relationally? Do we just give up? And it's a good question to ask because the Bible does indeed call for depth of relationship. I mean, it says we're supposed to be on the same page, same sentence, same word, same punctuation mark. I mean, like, we're called to be one, and yet at the same time, the scriptures call us to keep going out and going broad, to keep spreading the gospel, to keep making disciples. It doesn't say make your quota and then stop. <laughs> we're called to go deep, we're called to go wide, and we inevitably feel the stretch and we wonder, well, what do we do? How do it seems as if the, 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 the mandate that God has given us is an inevitable recipe for disunity. But friends, I'd, I'd have you realize that Paul does not actually see size as the primary threat of disunity to a church. 150 may be Dunbar's number, but it's not God's number. He doesn't have any numbers in mind. Paul, and all the things that he's concerned about for the church at Philippi, for example, none of it has to do with its numerical growth. The greatest threat to a church's unity isn't its size, but it is its selfishness it's selfishness that 
is a threat to unity. It's interesting that as Paul has been addressing the Philippians, he is writing to them as a healthy church, one that you would love to be a part of. I mean, so far, as we've made our way through chapter 1, have you seen any like major concerns about this church? I mean, sometimes he writes to a flaming dumpster fire. You know, like Corinth, you know, you know, like, man, things are bad there. Or you look at Galatia, and you're like, goodness sake, man, they're like giving up the gospel. But when you read the book of Philippians, you're like, wow, these are some pretty good people. You think that all is well. I mean, he's commended them for gospel partnership. It's a friendly letter. He says that he, he gets joy every time he prays for them. Like, he just gets the, like, these great feelings and this vibe. I mean, these things are good. They're all going to be advancing the gospel together. They're his primary supporters. And you're just thinking, like, this church is perfect. There ain't nothing wrong with this thing. But there is something. He does have one thing. It's not... It's not the biggest thing on the radar. It's something that he actually wants to defend against. And that is this very issue of disunity. When you go over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, you're going to see some specifics. But right now, he just speaks in glistening generalities. He says, guys, you need to live out your allegiance to the gospel. I've already told you about myself. Now I'm going to tell you what your job is. Ordinary gospel allegiance, this is what it looks like. And do you remember what he told them? It is advancing the gospel together. You need to be united around gospel advance. And what we saw a couple weeks ago and the week before that is that like, we're all in on seeing the gospel advance against opposition. And we better stay on the same page about that. But now he's going to expand on that whole same page thing. What does that look like, and how do you do that? So we're supposed to, like, unite around the advance of the gospel. If verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 covered the advance of the gospel piece, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, actually, are going to cover the united piece. Because it's one thing to advance a united front against an enemy. It's something else entirely to remain united internally with one another. Verses 27 through eternal, I mean, through 30, external advance of the gospel. Verses uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, it is the internal uh, ex- expression of allegiance to the gospel. So today is simple. It is a message on unity. <laughs> what it is, why it matters, most importantly, how we keep it. And if you're taking uh, notes today, I'm actually going to give you some, some little points ahead of time that might help organize this discussion, at least the way Paul lays it out. What we have here in this text we'll see are, is the motive for unity, the man or the mission for unity, the method of unity, and the model for unity, which we're going to cover next week. So just four little M's, motive, mission, method, and model. Motive, mission, method, model. Motive for unity. So what is going to energize our oneness for one another? Well, verses 1 and 2 pointed out it is just God's grace already experienced in our life. If we've experienced said grace, we're going to show it toward one another and get along. That's my summary of those two verses. But let's see the way Paul says it. Look at verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. 
Now, clearly, Paul wants them to be on the same page. You see that on verse 2, but notice the motivations that he gives them to do this. It's, a, it's an argument. He keeps using the word if, 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 if. You want to be fancy about it, what kind of argument this is, or what kind of conditional sentence this is. is a first-class condition. It assumes something to be true for the sake of making a point. So let me illustrate this t- style of argument and then I want you to see how it plays out in the text. So a, using a first class condition would be like a, a father talking to his daughter saying, if I know anything about boys in high school, you will not be dating until you're 30. <laughs> I didn't even say 19, I said 30. <laughs> if I know anything about boys in high school, there's your if, But guess what? It's assumed to be true. And I do. I do know what boys in high school are like. You will not be dating until you're 30. Paul is assuming what he's about to say to be true. He's going to say, look, if if these things are true, and they are, it would only make sense then that we would live as one. So what are these, these underlying realities, these motives for this type of unity? Well, they're pretty simple. The first one is, if there is any encouragement in Christ. If we've received any encouragement from Christ, if we've been built up by him in any way, if we have been encouraged, if we've been um, like pushed along by Christ, if he's given us comfort in the face of opposition, well, it would make sense that we would get along. There's the next one. If there's any comfort from love, the assumption is that this is God's love. If God's love has provided any comfort for you whatsoever, it would only make sense that you will get along. If, If you know what it's like to receive God's tender love, you will show this to one another. A song that we sing from time to time here, not that much, but it captures this theme well. This is the second verse of Beneath the Cross of Jesus. Listen to this. Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my home. Want strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved beneath the cross of Jesus? See, the children loved by God. We've experienced this great love from God. He's poured it out on us, and so naturally, logically, we're going to show love to one another and get along. The next motive that he gives is if there's any participation in the Spirit. The word participation there. It's the same word that was used earlier back in chapter 1 to talk about fellowship, koinonia, commonality, oneness. If the Spirit, the Holy Spirit residing in me and residing in you creates any participation or coordination, it would only make sense that we would express that. If we have the same Spirit within us, we're going to live that out in some way. And then here's the last one. This one's interesting to me. If there's any affection and sympathy... There's no divine referent here. It just talks about affection and sympathy generally. Uh, affection is just tender feelings. Sympathy is compassionate actions. You, you get these words. You'd see them in, in a Hallmark store in the sympathy section. <laughs> if any of that exists anywhere, it should at least exist within the church of God. If it exists anywhere at all, if there's any such a thing on this planet as affection and sympathy, it would naturally be expressed in a relationship within a local church, is what Paul is saying. And so you've got it 
if this, if that, if this, if that. If, because God has shown his grace toward us. Here's what would make sense, Philippians, that you complete my joy by being united. By being united. It's interesting. He actually doesn't say, if you do this, I mean, since these things are true, you need to be united. He puts it in very personal language. Remember, he's close to them. He's friends with them. And and what does he say? Hey, complete my joy by being united. You know what that does? It softens the blow a little bit. It it would be easy to think that any time some type of pastor or leader is talking about the issue of unity, that, you know, the, the, the glue is coming undone. That, I mean, like the house is about to burn down, like something major is going on. But Paul, he's not angry with them. He's not saying that, like, it's inescapable, like, uh, just absolute anarchy there at the church. I mean, he's saying that, hey, I love you guys. I, I think positively of you. You actually, like, give me joy. And all I'm asking here in light of the fact that these things exist is that you complete my joy, that you top it off, that you, you bring it up to the brim, if you will. It's an amazing thing that he's saying. It's not a huge threat, but it is a threat, and it's one worth noting. If we're going to live out our ordinary allegiance to the gospel, we'll always be concerned about topping off this unity, making sure that the relationships are strong, even though the gospel advance mission is to go wide. So... What is it exactly then that is the mission? If the motive is for unity is listed in verse 1, the mission for unity is described in greater detail in verse 2. I mean, you, you notice there in verse 2, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's the main verb, and then he modifies it by having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Uh, The the first one here is just a basic call to be on the same page. When we hear be of the same mind, we normally would think intellectually. And yet Paul here is not talking about intellect. He's talking about mindset. He's talking about the way that you think. Uh, I, I mean, he is specifically telling them to actually like process things the same way, which is kind of funny because We all work so different mentally. Some of you are short-term thinkers. Some of you are long-term thinkers. Some of you are task-oriented. Some of you are people-oriented. I mean, like, we all have these, like, we're wired certain ways. And he's saying, look, there's a certain mindset that you need to embrace. And you all need to process what goes on in this church the same way. And he's going to modify that even further. He says, okay, let, let me make this even more clear for you. This is called a tautology. When you actually, like, begin to be redundant, to the sake, uh, I mean, for the sake of being clear. Redundant for the sake of being clear. So, I mean, we do this all the time. Uh, Maybe last time you invited someone to a birthday party, you put on the card, please RSVP. Well, uh, friends, (laughs) you're actually saying, please, please respond. Rendezvous, si vous plaît, right? I mean, like, please and please. It's just redundant. In a similar way, uh, we, we will actually argue for, um, like, saying, uh, first and foremost. Well, first and foremost mean the same things, but sometimes we say that and we're trying to emphasize something. What Paul's going to do here is, is he's going to keep mentioning unity from a bunch of different angles. The first one was have the same mindset. The second one is have the same love. Hey, not only do you need to think the same way, you need to love the same things. You need to love the same things. 
And now he's going to add another one. He says, of one accord, depending on your translation. I love the, the literal Greek here. Being of the same soul, have the same soul. Man, <laughs> man, that, you're, you're definitely on the same page if your soul is the same. Now, I don't even know like, what that practically means. All I know is it means you're pretty together. So you have the same soul, you have the same love, you have the same mindset, and then notice that last thing it actually says in the text, and of one mind. I know it would be interesting, you would think that of one mind here means the exact same thing as it did earlier, but it actually means having the same purpose, having the same goal, having the same one thing. And what is that one thing? What is the one thing that you think Paul would have them uniting around? What do we know? Well, what has he said five times so far through chapter one? What has been the basis of their relationship with one another? It has been the gospel. The gospel. Their relationship was created in the gospel. He enjoys the fact that they're advancing the gospel. He updates them on the fact that he's advancing the gospel. And then he tells them in verse 27, hey, make sure that you're uniting around the gospel. Like the one thing is really clear. It's the advance of the gospel. He's saying, so I want you to pursue the one thing together. Have the same love, have the same soul, have the same mindset, pursue the same goal. You got it? And the dangerous thing here is like, oh, Justin, I got this. This is so easy. Uh, friends, it's not because we so often misdefine the unity that God is calling for here. We just think that unity means getting along with people. That is not, that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying just get along with people. People can unite around all kinds of ridiculous stuff. I actually looked it up. Did you know that there is a formal society called uh, the Israel Vacuum Society. That's a real club that you can join. You can either be a member of it or not. Uh, another, this is real and didn't make this up, the World Toilet Association. People can associate over a love and affinity of toilets. I, I don't know what goes on in those meetings, but it is a real thing. Or this one is a little more contextualized. The Irish Tug of War Association. <laughs> if you're Irish and you love tug of war, there's a group for you. Uh, just look through your Facebook feed and just look at all the ridiculous groups out there. People can unite over anything. Paul isn't just calling for general unity. He's not calling for general oneness. He's calling for people to unite around something very specific. And that is gospel advance. If you get this one thing wrong, it will cause all kinds of chaos in the church. All kinds. There are some imposters to church unity that are alive and well out there, and I just want to briefly let you know about a few of them. If Paul's saying being united around that you should be united around the gospel, there are some faux expressions of unity that are there that we should watch out for. Uh, one of those, and I'm just going to use some technical categories for a moment, is liberalism. Liberalism. Liberalism is the idea that everyone should get along no matter what they believe. 
no offense if you happen to have this bumper sticker on the back of your car, but I just want to let you know what it conveys. Maybe you've seen it. It's a, a little uh, sign. It says, coexist. And each of the letters of the coexist like, show like, a, a different religion. It's a symbol for a certain religion. So the T is the cross of Christianity. The C is the crescent of Islam, and so on and so forth. Uh, friends, that is not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about coexistence. Uh, the problem with liberalism as an expression of unity is like it, it, it totally removes the united around what? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's, he's rather exclusive in that. When Paul is talking about unity, he's not saying, hey, don't ever disagree with anyone, anywhere. He is saying be united around something. Because, I mean, frankly, friends, truth, like facts, it's a stubborn thing. Something's right or something is wrong. So liberalism would, it would give us this impression that we have this unity because we're just like, okay, as long as we get along with everybody, we're okay. And that is not what Paul's saying. He's saying unite around the gospel. But there's another imposter to unity, and that would be liberalism's opposite. And I'm going to use a, a, a label that I need to define, so don't just run with it. Just let me define it. The next one is fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. Fundamentalism, fundamentalism teaches, at least in the way that I'm defining it, that church unity centers on the gospel plus other things. The gospel plus other things, normally conservative values of some kind. You need to know something. This is just some background on myself. I grew up in churches that were fundamentalist churches. They actually use this term. Uh, and the movement, fundamentalism, when it got started in the early 1900s, was actually not what we think of today. It was actually centered around the advance of the gospel. They were defending essential gospel truths like the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection and return of Christ, the reality of miracles. I mean, like what it, the way it started was great, but something started happening around the 50s and 60s. Because there were, this group that was first centered on the gospel began to be centered on other stuff as well. So it was gospel plus, and then I'll give you some examples of things that the guys decided to unite around. Gospel plus Bible translation, normally the King James. Gospel plus some type of dress code. Gospel plus some type of music stuff. Just ignore me. <laughs> But if you are, I want you to be careful about something because it would be easy to think, hey, we need to be united and the unity is no longer about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners, but it's about something else other than that. And that's not what Paul's calling for here. That's not what he wants. He's not saying, don't be united around anything, but he's also not saying, hey, be united around stuff that isn't central to the gospel. He has something very clear in mind. There is another imposture that is out there this is the last one that i'll mention and that is consumerism 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 is the idea that church unity centers around the gospel plus felt needs the gospel plus felt needs so we're no longer uniting over the gospel now we're uniting over the gospel and all the stuff that we really really like or think that we should have uh, these type of churches are largely called attractional. 
An attractional church works this way. It polls and surveys the culture and finds out what people like, normally based on their music preferences. And then it builds a church model around that so that they can attract people to a church. Now, the danger about that is you still have the gospel, but you have the gospel plus something else. Uh, One of the biggest proponents of this uh, is in California, and the particular gentleman mine, I'm not kidding, because of the basis of his surveys, has a country western church, a reggae church, a traditional church. I'm not, look it up. (laughs) Uh, All of these, there are like six or seven different churches that meet there, and it's not gospel that creates the community. It's literally, I'm not kidding, it's music genre. And this little model has been out there for so long. I mean, like, books have been written on it. One was called, This Little Church Went to Market. <laughs> I mean, people took these, these marketing business ideas, they put them into the church, and now everybody's thinking like, oh, okay, yes, I'm going to go to a church because it advances the gospel and because it plays the kind of music that I like. And because it has the kind of programs that I want. And because it has the age group of people that I'm looking to hang out with. I'm not saying it's wrong to like the music style or the programs or the people who happen to be in your age group. I kind of like those kind of things too. But unity is not around those things. It's around the gospel. And that's what you have to look out for. Paul is saying, in this mission of unity, when he says, have the same mindset, have the same love, have the same soul, love the one thing, I mean, pursue the one thing together, he's talking about the advance of the gospel, not just our preferences, not just our traditions, and he's also not just saying anything quasi-religious. He's saying, unite around the gospel. And so we want to be a gospel-centered church. We are not thinking the same way. We're not clear on the one thing. We don't share the same love. We will end up, if we do not share these things, we will end up being frustrated, fooled, or fruitless. Can you imagine what it would be like for somebody to actually come into a church like this and say, oh yes, I'm so glad that these people are excited about the gospel, but then find out that they don't use the same Bible translation that they think that they absolutely have to have. We're going to have a problem. We're going to have a problem. I think music is probably like one of the most interesting expressions of this because I'm telling you, people can get up in arms over this. I mean, there's even a whole category of church conflict called worship wars. (laughs) Worship wars. And maybe you've seen it. Look, I understand that you have to obey your conscience. We've got a class on that. I am not saying that you deny anything that you think is sinful. What I'm saying is that Paul is clear that we will have a frustrated existence in a church if we think that our preferences are the same as the gospel. We need to move on. We've seen the motive for unity the mission of unity. Now let's get a little more practical. What's, what's the method? What's the method? How do we go about that? Because as you hear me talk, you may lean more toward the fundamentalist side of things. You may lean more toward the consumerist side of things. You may lean more toward the liberal side of things. And now we're all supposed to like just get along? <laughs> Justin, how does that work? How do you mix oil and water? 
I don't know. But Paul seems to know how people from different backgrounds and different personality types and different ethnicities and different educational experiences can get along, and they all come out in verses 3 and 4. Here it is. Here's your, your, your method for unity. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how do we get along? Well, here it is. There's, um, there's two categories here in this method. There's some status considerations and there's some service considerations. The status considerations are in verse 3. The service considerations are in verse 4. There's status. There's a way you need to think about people and service. There's some things you need to do. Uh, the way you need to think about people, verse 3, starts off really clearly. Do nothing, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition means exactly what you think it means. It is the idea of trying to get ahead of another person. Remember a few weeks ago I told you that story of the guy who pulled beside me at the stoplight. That, that look of competition, that jockeying for position, that wanting to get ahead. That's selfish ambition. Saying that I want to use this for personal advantage. And then he says, don't do anything from that. And then he says, do nothing from conceit. Conceit, it, it means empty glory. Empty glory. This is doing stuff as part of a church to exaggerate your own importance. Conceit, it has been said, is kind of like a balloon. You blow it up, it gets bigger and bigger, and in the end, it's only full of hot air. The more of the balloon you can see, the more empty it really is. And some people come into church wanting to make themselves big in a place like this, and yet it's empty. It says do nothing for that type of aggrandizement, that type of recognition. I mean, believe it or not, friends, it is very possible for you and even me to come to church for something other than the glory of God and the gospel. Newsflash, <laughs> it's possible. Some will come to church not for the glory of God and the gospel, but maybe for their own recognition even in the gospel. It's, a, it's an easy thing. It, it can happen often. You come to church and you're thinking, oh, these are the ways that I serve. These are the ways that I contribute. These are the roles that I've played in the past. This is the impact that I want to have here today, now. And it's all about the way that you could possibly be recognized. It's making church actively uh, about some way for you to be recognized. I am not kidding, friends. I actually had a guy. He's not here today. Um, he hasn't been here for a long time, and you'll find out why. He, uh, he complained, I was, it was my first year here, he came a few Sundays, and he, he, he said, I need to speak with you, I need to, you know, can you meet me for lunch? And so I met him for lunch, and um, he was letting me know all the plans that he had for our church, which I thought was interesting, but he also said, hey, I need to let you know something that kind of concerned me. I said, well, sure. He said, I gave a pretty substantial amount of money to the church, and I haven't received a thank you card. I was like, well, my goodness, let me get on that. As if I know what somebody gave to the church. But I am not kidding. This was a grown man 
who had been in church a really long time, and he was upset that somebody from the church didn't write him a thank you card. You say, nobody does that kind of stuff. Yeah, they do. All the time. When we either passively begin to withdraw from service in the church because nobody recognized us. We start subtly putting ourselves on the outside of things because nobody ever pats us on the back. Nobody ever recognizes us. Or maybe it's more active. Normally it could be just a complaining like, well, I don't understand why nobody appreciates me. Sometimes it's only verbalized between spouses. Sometimes it can be verbalized even in a small group. Like, man, it's like people don't even appreciate what we do around here. Look, you should be appreciated. And I'm not saying that I don't write thank you notes. <laughs> and, and I do care about everything that happens here. But let's just evaluate your own heart for a moment. Do you ever get in that position? Paul says nothing, nothing, do nothing for the advance of self. Even in the context of a church. It is certainly a, a status thing to consider. Notice what he says in, in the second part of the verse. He says, don't do things for selfish conceit, vain glory, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Humility. It literally means lowness of mind. It comes from two words, lowly and mind. Think about it this way, carpet-minded. <laughs> to think in a low way, you need to understand that this was not a value that was appreciated in the first century Roman world. You were not supposed to think lowly of yourself. You were supposed to think highly. But I said first century Roman world. Does that sound any different than what we hear today? I mean, if you actually just take a moment and consider, <laughs> like the way that popular psychology works today, did you know that for 1,900 years, people thought that the main problem with society was that people thought too highly of themselves? And then the modern psychology movement comes into play, and now the reason why everybody does all the horrible things they do is because they think too poorly of themselves. They, 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 I mean, like we really now think that humility is the problem. But I understand that humility is a hard word to define. What do we mean by it? Do we mean that we just think we're like the scum of the earth? Is that humility? The best definition I've ever seen, it's going to be long, and if you want to listen to it twice, you're going to have to re-listen to this message. But just hear it. I think this, this captures actually what the Bible communicates. This is a good theology of humility. From Marcus Bockuel, he writes, Instead of pursuing their own prestige, that strangely addictive and debasing cocktail of vanity and public opinion, the Philippians are called to humility. The lowliness of heart which agrees to treat and think others preferentially. The biblical view of humility is precisely not feigned or groveling, nor a sanctimonious or pathetic lack of self-esteem, but rather a mark of moral strength and integrity. It involves an unadorned acknowledgement of one's own creaturely inadequacies and entrusting one's fortunes to God rather than to one's abilities or resources. It is understanding that he is creator, I am created. He is redeemer, I am redeemed. It is not thinking too highly of oneself or too poorly of oneself. It's just actually not thinking of oneself at all. I mean, humility in many ways is like chasing a rainbow 
Like, you just never really get to the end. You ever done that, like, with a little hose, and you put it on mist, and you hold it up in the sun, and even with that right in front of you, you can't ever touch it? (laughs) Humility isn't something that you strive for. You strive for Christ, and then you stop thinking about self. See, the person who thinks, woe is me, I'm such a horrible person, is still thinking of me. The person who's saying, yay me, I'm amazing, is still thinking about me. But the person who is thinking about Christ is no longer thinking about self, and that is humility. That is what Paul is calling for here. I mean, Christ demands it. He says, look, you just need to understand that you are not the greatest. Don't pursue greatness, but be the servant of all, Matthew 20, verses 24 to 28. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom. In the passage that was so beautifully read for us earlier in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, it's the same thing. He says, hey, don't think extravagantly of yourself. Think soberly. Think soberly. Understand that you're a part of a body. You're not the total package. This is why Augustine would write, the church father, the theological giant, in a letter to a student, I wish you to prepare for yourself for ministry. And no other way of seizing and holding to the truth than that which has been prepared by God. So what is the one way that Augustine would have this guy prepare for ministry? He says it this way. In the first part, it is humility. The second, humility. The third, humility. And that humility, friends, enables us then to count others more significant than ourselves. That's that last part of the verse. You see it there? In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If selfish ambition and vainglory are sure bets to erode relationships within the church, then the surest safeguard of a healthy church is then to consider others as more important than oneself. Friends, we do this all the time. We consider others to be more important, typically when driving, under special circumstances. Now, we normally consider ourselves to be most important when driving, as evidenced by our frustration any time someone else cuts us off. But there are special circumstances, there are unique times in which we, generally speaking, will defer. And that is under two. One is when a siren comes blaring by, and we naturally pull over to the side of the road. Why would we do that? Because we understand by virtue of those lights and those noises that whatever's going on in that vehicle is more important than what's going on in my own. And I don't know if it happens here, but at least where I grew up, there was another condition, and that was a funeral procession. An honor would be given to a family as a car would make its way to a cemetery with police escort, and it didn't matter what was going on. Most people pull over to the side, and they would let those people pass. Why? Because they know what was going on there was what's more important than what was going on in my own car. That's what it means to consider others more important than yourself. It's almost as if you go into a church with this mindset. Everybody else has a blaring siren. (laughs) Everybody else is under police escort. Yes, I have stuff that I need to do, but I'm just going to assume that if they didn't speak to me, or if they did something contrary to what I wanted them to do, I'm going to assume that whatever was going on in their car was more important than what was going on in my car. I just give them the Christian benefit of the doubt. And he's saying, it would take humility to do that. 
that you can only do that if you are like checking self and considering others. That mindset will protect against disunity in a church. So there's some status considerations where we just come in and we assume, yeah, man, what's going on in their lives is really, really, really important. There's also some service considerations. It's not just our status, like the way we view the other people in a church. It's also our service. There's some practical things. Look at verse 4. It's very simple. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Do not look out for your own interests. I love the term look out for. Guys, you'll like this one. It's the Greek word skapeo, skapeo, from which we get the word scope. It's just a, a very great word. You understand that when you're using the word scope, you're either zeroing in on something, you're giving it special attention and focus. I love the way one pastor thought of it. The, that what we look out for is often determined by two tools, the telescope and the microscope. Sometimes we get into telescope mode where we're thinking ahead and we're strategizing about the long term and we're thinking about, okay, what do I need to do to get to this point? And sometimes we go inward and think microscope. We obsess over the details of the moment because it pertains to us. It is self-interest. There's a microscope going on. And what he's saying here is, hey, don't only look out for your own self, telescope, microscope, whichever one it is, but look out also for the interest of others. Now, I want to be clear on something because this would cause you, you'd be tempted to think, oh, this is impossible, I'm not going to do any of this. But I want you to know that this is actually not impossible. This is a very realistic command. Because he's not telling you, he's not telling you, don't look out for your own interests. He's saying, yeah, look out for your own interests. Acknowledge, like, yeah, there's stuff that goes on in life that you need to, like, look out for, you need to protect. He says, but just make sure that you are looking out for the interests of others as well. It reminds me of that experience we have so often in sitting on a plane. They make that same announcement over and over and over and over again. You think we would know that we... We get it. Thank you, lady. We not only need to buckle our seatbelts, but we also need to put our own mask on before putting a mask on a child beside us. And I don't know anyone who has yet actually come to that, that moment in the presentation and yelled out, that's a travesty! Down with the children! You know, I mean, no, nobody would say that. Everybody gets it. Like, if I'm passed out on the floor, I certainly can't help the kids. Put your mask on help the others. This is what Paul's saying here. Look, get your mask on, get, get, take care of yourself, get whatever you need, and now, with that in mind, look out for others also. It's actually a very easy thing to understand. So the question would be for us this, uh, friends, how often do you telescope <laughs> for the good of others in this congregation? You sit and you think and you plan about what would be best for them in the advance of the gospel in the long term. And it doesn't just have to be individuals. Maybe it is actually the group as a whole where you sit and think and plan what would be best for the church as a whole. It's kind of what we do in members meetings. Another is the microscope. When was the last time you just sat and you poured over the details of someone else's life because you actually wanted to see them be okay? You wanted to see them safe. Paul is saying, yeah, you're going to do that on your own, but make sure you're doing it for others. 
I think maybe the best analogy that we could all grasp in this, the mindset here that enables this type of activity, this type of service, is that of a parent. If you're a child in this room and you have yet to have children, just borrow the analogy best you can. But parents, we understand, at least should be those who take care of themselves to some degree so that they can ultimately take care of their children, especially those 18 or 25 or 30 or 40 years of life, depending on your house, that they stay in the home. So in this particular instance, like you know that a parent is normally, yes, they take care of themselves, but they're actually living and breathing for the good of another. They've taken on the responsibility of an additional life. So for you when, you, when you look at your service to this church, do you play more the role of the child or the more the role of the parent? Paul is saying, no, you're going to take on a parental perspective. You're actually going to be thinking not, hey, what can I get from this? You don't evaluate the service solely in terms of, man, how did that benefit me today? But you're actually thinking in terms of success as, who could I bless? Who could I connect with? Who could I encourage? How could I help? How could I serve? Paul says, there's your antidote for unity. This is the methodology. You're going to check self at the door. You're going to look out for others. There's a status thing where you view them as more important than you, and there's a service thing where you actually like say, all right, I've done enough for me. Now it's time to contribute to someone else. This is tough. I get it. I know it's tough. (laughs) The conductor of an orchestra was once asked, what is the most difficult instrument to play? What is the most difficult instrument to play? We're talking an orchestra. That's, that's a lot of instruments. But he didn't have to think about it very long. He said, that's easy. Second fiddle. Everybody loves to be the star. But without other people serving, there's no harmony. Without other people serving, there's no harmony. A little poem said it this way, It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Friends, what Paul would remind us, even though it's tough, is guess what? We have this grace. We we can do this. How? Because of the motive. God has poured out his love on us in Christ. The Holy Spirit resides within us. He's created a common bond and affection, not just for self, but for others. Affection and sympathy, they exist in heaps. Through Christ. And the basis of that motive enables us to pursue then this mission of total oneness around seeing the gospel advance. I mean, Paul exemplified it. No, no matter whether it cost him personal prominence or personal convenience, he just wanted to see it go forward. And he modeled that so that we could understand, like, yep, same is true for us. We could do this. God has poured out the same love that was poured out on Paul. We have. The same spirit that Paul had. We have motives are there. The mission is clear. The method is hard. But Paul will give one more 
piece of helpful advice for a church pursuing unity. And that is the model of Christ. We don't have time to look at it today. We'll save it for next week. But no, friends, if this still seems ultra tough to you, there's more encouragement on the way. But in the meantime, I want to ask you this. Do you actually have this grace? The grace to play second fiddle. Have you been included in Christ? Have you received the love of God poured out generously through the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ for all who would believe in him? Because you will never fit in to where God intends for you to serve, to be what God intends for you to be apart from depending on his son alone. Do you have this grace? Number one, but many of you do. And so the second question would be this, are you leveraging this grace? Are you using this grace actively, ongoingly, regularly in this congregation to actually pursue others, to care for them, to nurture them, to actually contribute to them and not just be contributed to? This isn't a guilt thing, it's a grace thing. Once more, God has been so kind, it would only then make sense that we would pursue this type of oneness with one another. And so if you're struggling, let's pray. If you need more than that, let's revisit this again next week with the model of Christ and see what the Lord does. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For the kindness that you've shown us in Christ, there is encouragement in him, or there is comfort that comes from his love. There is indeed Lord, this, this richness of fellowship that we enjoy in the spirit, or affection and sympathy, or they are there. And so in light of that, or we get to now live this out with one another, or what we've experienced vertically, we now get to reflect uh, horizontally. It is a joy, and so I pray that we would live that out. I pray that you would protect the unity of this church for decades. But Father, if there are some here who may be united around the wrong things, or to adjust their heart, if there, there are some who are not yet in Christ, we pray they, pray they would be. We pray that they would trust in you, that they would turn from their sin. And for those who are already in you, for those who are already a part of your church, we trust that, Lord, you will encourage us for this monumental effort of playing second fiddle here to Christ. He should be the focal point. He is the center of all that's done. May we see that he is truly better than anything we could hope or desire. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.